and to know that by the end of the day, it's not what you know, it's who you know, it's what your brand is, and it's whether people trust you at the end of the day. So shiny titles aside, at the core of who you are as a person, when everything falls apart, you have to be someone who really walks the talk, is values-oriented, and is someone who's likable. Welcome to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, where we talk to change makers and innovators focused on upending systems not designed by or for them to create a more inclusive and equitable world. I'm your host, Sarah Chapman Becerra. Welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome everyone to Trailblazing in Color podcast. Our guest today is an expert in organizational change management, culturally responsive organizational practices, and diversity, equity, and inclusion programmatic initiatives. With over 14 years of experience in operations, policy research, and project management, Dr. Sana Sheikh is the founder of Time Ed, focuses on developing anti-racism, anti-bias learning solutions for national nonprofits, parent-teacher organizations, and school districts. In 2011, Teach for America Corps member, Sana spent two years teaching 11th grade English in Baltimore City. He later joined Teach for America's staff, serving in various capacities on the national operations and admissions team. Her experience has ranged from policy to nonprofit and has taken her from Denver, Colorado, working with Senator Mike Johnston, to New Orleans, Louisiana, for AmeriCorps partnerships to Ghana to help steward positive social change. With a PhD in social policy and management in assets and inequalities, Sana's research has focused on analyzing the intersection of racial identity and relational coordination in cultivating culturally responsive classrooms. She has had the privilege of presenting her research both domestically and globally in relational coordination roundtables that have taken her from Portland, Oregon to Copenhagen, Denmark. Sana has obtained numerous fellowships throughout her career. She was the recipient of the Harvard Kennedy School Rappaport Fellowship, a Leadership for Educational Equity Fellowship, the Inspired Fellowship through the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, and more recently serves as a 50 Can National Voices Fellow. In all of these spaces, Sana is committed to using data to create meaningful programmatic initiatives for quantifiable and equitable policy change. In 2022, Sana presented at TEDx New Haven with her talk, Building Bridges, Not Bias, Navigating Relationships in Uncertainty, Unveiling the Extraordinary Power of Relationships in Dismantling Biases, Stereotypes, and Misconceived First Impressions. Sana has been a thought partner and facilitator for Achievement First, Savitas, Mersion, the Ghana Health Education Initiative, and The Collective, among others. Sana lives in Connecticut with her husband, Dr. Rehan Sheikh, five-year-old twins, Amal and Amin, and five-month-old Azan. Welcome, Sana. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I mean, listen to that bio. There's so much to unpack. I'm so happy you're here. Sarah, thank you so much for having me and for making this space. Thrilled for our conversation ahead. Me too. Well, let's start with a little bit more about you and your origin story and how you came to this work. Tell us a little bit about Sana as a person? That's such a powerful question, right? Like who makes us? What is our core about? And I would be remiss not to talk about my origin story truly of coming to this country. So 
I came to the United States when I was around seven years old. And the, the main reason why we came was for an education. So at the time, my, uh, it was my sister and myself. My little brother was born here in the United States. And my father was very much passionate about raising strong, brave, courageous girls. And that was just not the norm in Pakistan at the time. There wasn't the same equitable education system. So my origin story and my why is coming to this country specifically for education. And that undergirded me, anchored me, and really pushed me to succeed in the classroom and like allowed for me to be a part of Teach for America. That's what allowed me to be invested because it was such a powerful precursor of what I was, who I was. And so whenever I think about who I am and where I come from, I feel like accolades are just part of the story. They're not what makes you who you are because in moments of trial or grief or challenge, you always go back to your core. And I can always remember that little girl was coming to the United States during Christmas time, not knowing English, not knowing the context, and just did not know what the journey ahead was going to be. So that's like a little bit about my why and what makes me passionate about the work that I do. It's, it's so wonderful to hear that part because then you you reflect on your bio and your story and your career journey. And it just makes so much sense that education has been the anchor and equity in education has been has been the focus of your efforts in so many ways. So maybe we could start by going back to your time as a Teach for America core member and working for the organization, thinking about your experiences there. What were some of the things that inspired your work and your focus now? Teach for America really fundamentally shifted my entire career arc. Um, it was something that I fell into in many ways because after graduating from UC Berkeley, I was very much passionate about wanting to make a change, but unsure about what that would look like. And so at the time, I was very much interested in law school or pursuing a career in the United Nations or World Bank. So I was trying to figure out wanting to make the systemic change, but unsure about where my skill sets would take me. And Teach for America was very serendipitous. I kind of fell into it in many ways. And what moved me about the organization in many ways was it, its imperfection. And the imperfection part, I remember one of the questions we were asked in one of the interviews was, do you think that educational inequity will ever be solved? Like that was like the large question. They wanted to see how we thought about and operationalized systemic ills. And I was very, very honest. Um, my thought process at the time was, during my two years in the classroom, I can do my absolute best at making this a safe space for my students, at pushing myself to succeed, at really utilizing all of my resources at my disposal to make a difference. But I am not sure whether that two years is going to cure systemic ills and going to decrease all of the inequities that have been embedded in our system. And I, I did a precursor. Like I wanted to be idealistic, but it's very difficult to be idealistic with difficult questions that involve like the lived experiences of others. And so I think that that kind of vignette shows that Yes, Teach for America was an imperfect tool, but it was powerful in a way that it empowered people 
who wanted to make a change to be equipped and be in spaces where they could speak truth to power and use their experiences to uplift and amplify the stories of their students and use that information to go out and do good things in their careers, whether that be law or policy or medicine. And now even almost 14 years out of the core, there are so many of my colleagues and friends who are just doing phenomenal work. And whenever we connect, like we call it the TFA Hive, we always think about like, what was our connection back to Teach for America? Like what inspired us to be who we are? And there is nothing more challenging than being a 20-something-year-old, starting your career not knowing how to make an impact and being told to look at yourself deeply as a person because in order for you to be the best teacher or educator possible and in front of you to stand on the stage in front of other people, you have to really know who you are. And when you're 21 and 22, you don't know who you are. And so it is this very scary reality check of learning about yourself while selflessly serving for the community. And it is it is just such a powerful experience and it has completely undergirded everything that I've ever done within my career to understand and amplify stories, to build strategy that allows for organizations to really know success and to know that by the end of the day, it's not what you know, it's who you know, it's what your brand is, and it's whether people trust you at the end of the day. So shiny titles aside, at the core of who you are as a person, when everything falls apart, you have to be someone who really walks the talk, is values-oriented, and is someone who's likable. And so all that to say that Teach for America was instrumental, and I uh, I can't believe where I am now, and in many ways, it, it fell into my path. Yeah, we look at, I, I think, your your perspective, and you said, even back then, I, I had to really think through that the answer to their question around, can this ever really be solved? And I remember in our in our previous conversation, you were talking about how systems are fundamentally imperfect. And so there's always going to be imperfections in our systems based on you know, who's in charge, who's got power. Policy is really what makes that change and creates that sustainability. And we're always reevaluating. But maybe you could talk a little bit more about the research you've done and the policy work you've done around this. You've worked in various capacities, policy to nonprofit. Talk a little bit more about systems change and policy as it relates to meeting those core needs of inequitable practices. I would love to share a little bit about my research and, and what and how that has allowed for me to like conceptualize a lot of these issues. So I looked at how the intersection of teachers teaching within K-12, the intersection of the relationships that they have with different stakeholders, so specifically colleagues, teachers in the classroom, and administrators. So, you know, we know research shows that beyond teachers, principals are key stewards to amplifying student outcomes. So relationships with colleagues, principals, and community stakeholders. And how does the intersection of these relationships and their racial identity, so how they classify themselves, how, how does that intersection impact the extent to which they're culturally responsive? And I used a tool that's calibrated. It's called relational coordination, and it is 
a tool that allows us to look at different aspects of a relationship. Because we always say, you know, our relationship with our partner and our friend and our company. But like, what does that mean? Because it's quantified differently by different people. Um, And ultimately, what I found was that you, you cannot underscore the importance of someone's racial background, their lived experience and how they perceive the world. And the strength of a relationship, the trust that you have with other people, the shared goals, communication, the way that you operationalize, how you want to make an impact, all of those make a significant impact on the way that people show up in the world. And for me, that's super timely because we think about how we want to make a change or transform organizations. And if we look at it from a for-profit lens, right, at the end of the day, the decision is, what will eventually impact business outcomes? And for what I do now, it's so much about thinking about like, how do you build inclusive cultures where people feel seen, heard, and valued? And then a lot of times in the nonprofit space, it's like, what are our metrics that, that affect student outcomes or policy change or advocacy? And how are we going to meet and reach those milestones? Whether it's for-profit or nonprofit, at the end of the day, the theme that undergirds both of these spaces are people. And for us to have people who do the best work that they possibly can do, they need to feel seen, heard, and valued. They need to authentically come into spaces where their voice is amplified and respected. And they need to build relationships with important key stakeholders that may look differently in a for-profit space than an education space. But ultimately, how they're showing up, how their voice is being heard is going to impact whatever bottom line or and like end outcome you're, you're reaching for. So I like to say that when you're looking at, you know, project inception and delivery and results, we keep forgetting that people are a key component of that. And how are we really amplifying their stories, valuing their work, valuing their voices? And as a brown woman, I come into spaces differently than my peer who may not have the same experience. But even though we have different experiences, when you're thinking about policy change or when you're thinking about changing the manner in which students are operating in classrooms or student outcomes or educator empowerment or whatever our final goal is, we, we have to hear the voices of the people truly in a way that they want to be heard. And if we don't do that and if we just kind of like paint brush strokes and say, hey, we want to maximize change, but really not hear the voices of the people, see how they're showing up, and really kind of calibrating that piece, there's never going to be long-term change. And so those are some of the questions and things I think about on a daily basis, no matter where I operate. And such a key component, Sarah, of that is lived experience and being culturally inclusive and being culturally responsive. Because Every person comes to a space with a different lived experience, and that different lived experience impacts the way that they show up. We can't say that, oh, put all of those feelings aside or those lived experiences aside and come as a neutral entity. We're never neutral by design. And so uh, how do you make someone comfortable enough for them to feel heard and for them to show up authentically um, is something that does keep me up at night. Yes, because it is it is the thing. And, and what I appreciate about your work and the intersectionality of how you, I mean, to me, this concept of relational coordination was new. So I want to hear a little more about what that looks like. 
And also this idea at Trailblazing in Color, we work a lot with clients around following a more human-centered design process around creating systems change. And it really is about having those who we're serving at the center and, and not just assuming what their needs are, but going out and asking and thinking critically around, you know, how do we source this information? So we have a really clear picture on what being seen, heard and valued looks like for each individual because it looks differently. So I wanted to hear maybe a little more practicality around how does this look in practice? What strategies do you, do you engage to bring this concept of relational coordination into organizations or even just talking a little bit more about that concept and what that means. Before anything, you need to know the why. Why are we doing the work that we're doing for any problem, for any initiative, right? It's like we want to increase diversity at the table on executive teams, for example. We want to make sure that more underrepresented youth are in the pipeline for these tech fellowships. We want to increase the numbers by X for mobility for X demographic. Or we want to just increase sales of this particular product. And we want to do it X or Y way. So we, whatever problem or initiative comes to the forefront, we need to know the why of like, why am I at the table? Or why do you want me to be involved? Or why is this initiative significant? Because if the why is not clear, to your point, Sarah, about like human-centered design and learning, it's almost a travesty to bring in all these people create vulnerable spaces, and then know that their voices are not going to be a critical component of the process. So when you're designing human-centered work, whether that is thinking about creating inclusive spaces or organizational change management or wanting more diverse folks from a wide array of, of voices at the fold, we need to know the why. And once we, need, once we know the why, we need to know the how. So how are we going to do it? What are our resourcing? What is the capacity? How is a team going to function collaboratively? How am I going to have a voice at the table? Like those are really kind of the basic questions, the bare bones questions. And if the answer is, we don't have an answer or we'll get back to you, then I think at, at that point in time, you know that there, there needs to be a little bit more self-reflection, a little bit more digging for there to be the hope and goal and outcomes that you want to achieve. And I think that in our society, what I've noticed, whether it's for-profit, non-profit, is you want to go fast. It's like you want to go fast, break things. You want to achieve your outcome. So much of this work is not like that. It's very slow, painfully slow at times. Um, it is very incremental and it's very thoughtful. So for thoughtful spaces to be built, there needs to be a very deep understanding of how all these stakeholders are going to work together intentionally and meaningfully. Because if not, you're just going to create something and then you're going to be like, why aren't people aligned? Why aren't they collaboratively working? And to your question about like, what do we see tactically? Like, what does collaboration look like at the fold? It looks like people staying in organizations, people wanting to stretch themselves, um, employees wanting to have a voice at the table, reaching for things that they generally haven't reached before. It's like fulfilling the metrics in some capacity. And so people-centered work it's centered on the people doing the work right at the forefront. And then by doing right by them at the forefront and checking in on them through the design of it, you're going to implement spaces where you can fulfill whatever metric that you're aiming to fulfill ultimately. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that opportunity to really slow down, especially in the beginning, to get super clear on the why, 
because we so want to jump into the how we want we're we're fast moving our society like technology has made things happen so rapidly that it feels like everything should be able to be accomplished right now and i think that that's a lot of the the work we're all up against in the de and i space the eib belonging space is this work takes time because transformation takes time because systems change takes time and often what we're doing when we're rushing is we're solving the wrong problem or yeah we're solving the thing that we think is going to fix it but we haven't asked the people who we're trying to solve for what's really getting in the way so if we're not taking the time to really understand that and that's why i really like how you talk about relationships being at the center of these conversations the learning and the listening because we don't know what we're missing until we have these conversations and so before diving into anything really getting clear on the why getting clear on the roles and responsibilities of each stakeholder and what are we bringing and what are we doing and layering in identity and experience in over all of it I took my girls to a museum in San Diego last night called the Wonder Museum. And there was all kinds of fun stuff. But on one of the exhibits, there was a quote that said, how we see shows us what we've seen. We'll think that it's, it's, it's really sat with me since yesterday is because we're not all coming neutral, like you said. We're not coming to the table neutrally open to whatever's being suggested. We're coming with what we've seen. And there's richness there. There's learnings there we can all tap into and leverage, but only if we're having these conversations, only if we're building these relationships intentionally. Hey, if you are enjoying the show, be sure you subscribe and join our community at trailblazingincolor.com, where we share resources, connect you with other amazing trailblazers in our trailblazer circles, and amplify our collective power. Hope we see you there. Okay, back to the show. Sarah, that's such a powerful point. Like that also sits with me because we can't say that we are not biased in some capacity, even the change makers, right? Even the practitioners, even the folks who are trying to change the systems and trying to transform the organizations. We're coming with our own biases and we're coming with our own cultural lenses. And I I think about in the work, I always go back to my why, right? Like it's like my origin story, so to speak. And as I was coming up the ranks, like as a child growing up in varying institutions, I would never want someone else to speak for me about what my experience looked like, because only I know what that experience was. And so I think about that when I'm building learning and development modules or building strategy or working to engage with a diverse array of stakeholders is, do other people want their stories to be told by me? And most likely, no, because I don't want someone else to tell my story either. So how are we collectivizing in terms of impact? Like, how are we building a community where it's not just like I'm speaking for you? It's how are we speaking with you? How are we all at the table? And how are we doing that in an authentic way? And so much of that, I think, is something that needs to be underscored is we think about like a practitioner coming in, doing some sort of magic and the people being like, oh, you're so great. But When you're working with any organization, it's like, how are you built into the DNA? How are you being asked to be part of the collective and part of the community? And how are you being gifted with that trust, that privilege to be there in that space and take up space 
And we know quite quickly, right, when we're interfacing with people, like we just have that understanding that, oh, we immediately get along with certain folks and their energy. And for others, we get it gives us a bit of pause. And I just think about like when interfacing with any sort of change agent or doing change management, it's so important to acknowledge like who is at the table. How are we amplifying the voices of the communities or the voices of the clients that we seek to serve? And how is this expert, so to speak, who's coming in, how are they being branded as a community member? Because if you're coming from the outside as an outsider, trying to make change and not doing it in a way that's collective, you're not going to be successful in the work. Um, because it's not about you, it's about the people within that org. And I've seen it work really, really well. And work very, very poorly. And it's when you come as a savior is when it goes very poorly. And I, I think it's important to keep that in the back of your mind. Like, how do you show up? How do you show up in this space? How are you empathetic? How are you kind? And how are you acknowledging that even as human and as people, change is so hard? Like unlearning past ways of thinking, unlearning past ways of eating, unlearning past ways of living your life. Like, constantly being on hustle mode all the time is so difficult and you have ownership over your own life. So magnifying that by X when you're interfacing with a certain entity is going to be even harder. So as a practitioner, I think it's just important to center on others and not have us be the center of the work. Mm -hmm. Gosh, you, you articulated that so well around why these efforts fail or the mindset coming in can fail either from the side of the practitioner coming in as an external consultant or from the expectations of the internal team that this person who we've hired is going to solve every problem that we have just because they're there. Well, it's about interweaving them into the community, into the fabric of the organization and and taking that hat off of I'm as a practitioner, like I know the answers. I know. I come into every conversation like, I don't know what's going to happen here, where we're going to go. I've got some outcomes that we're driving towards, but I want to leave space for really people sharing what's really going on and creating that safe space for vulnerability about the actual things versus wanting to put a shiny bow on and how we think this should look. And so that idea of the, the savior piece on both sides, like one person can't come and save your entire organization. And me as the practitioner shouldn't assume that either, but really being intentional with the ecosystem around the creation of the solution or the engagement. Like, what does it look like to be an ongoing partner? That's, that's moreover how I think we think about it is partnership. Like we're really, we're coming in and we're a part of your organization. We're a team member and we're brought in for a specific purpose. I think that is the risk and you named it so well of bringing someone in and hoping that everything is going to be fixed just because we had one session or we did a couple of, of uh, workshops. I think we've seen that. I think you're absolutely right. I think we've seen the ebbs and flows of the work the last few years too, like especially folks who are deeply in the work, deeply in the field. And you're absolutely right. It's that like building trust, that being in the fabric by collectivism. And honestly, Sarah, by like showing impact and measuring by impact, there has to be results orientation. And I think that sometimes for DEI practitioners specifically, the assumption is that we're just talking the walk, so to speak. And that's definitely not the case. Like there is 
very clear metrics that should show that your effort led to X or Y. And if your effort did not, that is an opportunity to do a deep dive as well. Like where is the disconnect? And how are we as practitioners being conscious of the disconnect and advocating and consistently pushing the envelope for change? Well, I want to dig into that a little bit more because your expertise is so much seeped in data and people analytics and strategy behind that centered around around outcomes and what are we driving towards? Let's really get clear. And I think that is something that still is really difficult in this field to get people on board. So how... How do you work with organizations or how can organizations ensure that they're making data-driven decisions that promote equity, inclusivity, rather than perpetuating system biases, system systemic disparities, and just continue the cycle? How do we leverage data and analytics in this work? I think it's to our earlier point about how we are showing up in the work. I think that there there's a few ways that work happens within organizations, right? Like depending on your thought process, you could either be top down, bottom up, just like a collaborative space. And as leaders in varying capacities, like within leaders within our team, leaders within larger teams, executive teams, like I think every person has a key role in determining how they're showing up, one, and two, what types of spaces are they creating to have very open conversations on data impact and next step. Because at the end of the day, DEI practitioners, can only do so much. They have impact, right, kind of to the top of our conversation. Can a teacher absolve or eradicate educational equity is the question. And if we were to say, no, a teacher cannot, they can make a massive impact in their classroom, but they cannot solve generations of inequity. The same question comes back X amount of years later with change management and practitioners. So if we're thinking about how are we weaving the fabric and we're advocating for how everyone is a leader within the organization to maximize that change, that leaders have a significant responsibility for creating spaces where data is the center of the work and where there is a culture that allows people to speak up and vocalize when something is difficult or hard. And that creating that type of space for dissent it's probably the most powerful tool you can use to maximize your outcomes for change and betterment. Because when someone feels safe enough to say, hey, this is not working, this is how we should operate, and you allow for them to lean in, take that space, and provide them opportunities for growth or for change is how change will happen. But largely, what I have found is people are so adamant on wanting change quick. And if results are not provided, it's like, let us reorient ourselves, change the process, bring, you know, bring other folks in and not really being or taking a concerted effort to how do you amplify the voices of the people? How do you stop and discuss like where the pain points are? And how do you continue to vehemently move forward within the work? And it's very, very difficult to do that because we bring ourselves into the spaces that we operate. So sometimes if someone is giving me constructive feedback, right, even as a practitioner, I, as a person, practitioners are people. We are not made of stone. We also have to put aside our ego, our own experiences, what we think is right to be like, I see you. I take the feedback. Thank you for the gift of feedback. 
I will try my best to do better next time, even if your intention was anchored in good. And as leaders within organizations, whether that be nonprofit or for-profit or maybe some profit, uh, change is only possible by creating cultures of dissent within and being intentional about the why and stopping and pausing and assessing where your people are at. Because if you're just going forward 100 miles an hour and seeing gaps in the data, not being data centered and just changing in the moment, it's, it's, not, the, it's not a best practice. It, it, will, it will maybe feel good in the moment that you did something, but doing something doesn't mean that you're going to do something powerful. We wish that there was, you know, the handbook to organizational transformation. Here's exactly how you do it. But really, the skills of this work fundamentally are humility and courage and, and letting go of ego and letting go of this idea that we know anything for certain at all. Maybe we do for a time, but it's going to change. And I love how you name it as a culture of dissent. I've heard that before. It killed up to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and just... My descent. I love it. Being able to have the safety, because you use safety and we're thinking about psychological safety, to say this isn't working. And the courage to push back from that to practice. And it has to be modeled at every level of the organization. So maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, where have you seen wins in this work? Because there's so much to do. What have you seen in your work that has been a positive example of, of this culture of percent and creating that safety? So much of the safety, Sarah, is based on our relationships with people. And for me, that's where I found the most gift, so to speak, where personally, there's people who in my journey have advocated for me, been my ally, supported me, and they don't look a thing like me, or they don't share my background, or they may have come in a little bit more careful and then they were won over by something I did or something I said for them to really stand up for something that they may have not fundamentally believed in before. And for me, I think that if we think of that as a ripple impact of how can relationships be seen as really a way of amplifying and fundamentally shifting organizations, I think that that is powerful in and of itself. And I just think about my past manager when she was such a powerful woman. And one thing that she showed me when we think about like how we show up in spaces and how we are treated, like she was probably one of the only managers I've ever had who was a woman of color. And she was around my age. So we connected on that component. But one thing that she really taught me was how do you advocate for yourself? And how do you create a culture of dissent? Like, how do you push back in a way that may make you feel uncomfortable? And in other spaces, the feedback I received was like, just be more vocal or advocate for yourself. But because she had the cultural lens, because she knew what, like how we are indoctrinated. So I'm Pakistani. Our culture is very traditional, so to speak. And so even though I grew up in a, in, a, in a family where my dad was such an advocate of, of my growth and he provided me with virtually every opportunity you can receive, I was like, oh, I want to do debate and travel the country by myself. He was like, go for it. Oh, I want to go to China to teach. He's like, do it. And so that has been such a huge confidence builder for me 
throughout my life is my father was in my corner. He told me I could do everything. So imposter syndrome is hard when you have that embedded within your DNA. But at the same time, if there if there was a conflict or there's something that's difficult, it's very hard for me to then confront it with that person in that moment in real time or to dissent. Because culturally, we are told to kind of sweep it under the rug. Like that is just how we are brought up, whether through explicit or implicit ways of growing up. So if there's any sort of challenge that you have with someone else, the way I show up in spaces is I don't acknowledge that challenge. And that is not ideal. I would not suggest that because that just percolates into something bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually it's like then the two people are never going to see eye to eye. And so I acknowledge that growth, that piece in my personal life that I'm aiming to work on. And and this manager that I had, she showed up so unabashedly in spaces. And she was also South Asian. And she was just like, this is what's going to happen. This is how I feel. And she did it both with grace, but so much strength and conviction. And she did it in a way where you were like, that's a great point. Like, let me consider it. And pushing back doesn't mean that you're absolving the relationship with the other person. It's just a, a healthy way of getting opinions and ideas in the same space because we're all in the same team together. And working with her for about three years really reshifted the way that I come into spaces where just because we are disagreeing doesn't mean that we are fundamentally destroying that relationship. It just means that we're coming at the situation from two different angles and we can maybe come in the middle. Maybe we can take your idea. Maybe we can take mine. Maybe we can take neither. And when I think about like what I've seen like that has really inspired me over the years is like that type of personal growth within and among people where you're like, hey, I had my personal challenge, my personal bias, my personal difficulty of how I show up. And you taught me something so fundamentally different. Like, what am I scared of? There must be something I am scared of by saying something that I think someone is going to find offensive. And I think that at the end of the day, like doing that type of constant self-reflection as practitioners only allows us to grow. And for me, like my husband on another personal level, my husband is so he probably has the highest EI of anyone I've ever met. He can go in a room and he can gauge very, very quickly like this is what the dynamic is. This person and this person get along. This person doesn't like he can just pick up on it right away. So sometimes like I don't even have to say anything. I can easily like you're thinking of this, this and this. And I'm just like, how, you know, how do you know? And he, he's just like, cause you're predictable. And I say that because he is one of the only people who has that ability with me. But unless I say what I want to say in basis, no one's going to re be able to read my mind about what I'm going through, what I'm advocating for. And I think a lot of times women of color are very hesitant about speaking their minds for whatever reason. They, they know what to say. It's hard for them to take up space. And I think seeing a woman of color taking up space and doing it in such a graceful way is ultimately what has inspired me to be like, relationships are the way to amplify. And if anyone is saying that that's not the way, like they haven't met my path manager because it is the way. That's huge to have had that influence modeled for you. I, I think of the old adage, or maybe it's not that old. But we can't be what we can't see. So if we don't see that modeled, it's way scarier or even impossible to see, figure out what it might look like in practice around dissenting to people who don't look like you, who have 
a lot more perceived power than you and show up and take up space so much more easily than you do. So it's one thing to be vocal in a meeting, looking one way, having one lived experience, and it's entirely different to ask someone to be vocal when that hasn't been their lived experience. So just getting that advice, advocate for yourself, be more vocal. It only works when we're able to see it modeled for us. And I'm so glad that you had that experience because now we have the the privilege of getting your voice added to the table. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your personal brand and on time ed too, around where you're you're headed with this work. So where you sit right now, one, how have you built and effectively maintained your personal brand? You did a TED talk last year. That's huge. Um, so so what does that process look like for finding your voice and putting yourself out there in more bold, courageous ways? And then what's next for where you go from here? I love that question. I love it. Personally, I think my my brand is speaking truth to power in the only authentic way I know how, which is being myself. I don't find there a lot of leaders who look like me in the spaces that I want to be in. So I started off in education and it is not generally the space that a lot of South Asian women go into. Then I went to policy wanting to like maximize that impact and using policy as a way of creating change. Again, but didn't find anyone like me. Went to education and academia, found even a smaller group. So it just kind of dwindled as I went from space to space where there wasn't women that looked like me. There wasn't women who talked like me or had the intersectional experiences that I did. And that is to say that my personal brand is grounded in being authentically me, speaking truth to power, and thinking very critically about how we can use data to amplify productive change, whether that's socially and civilly, whether that is within organization, within people analytics and strategy, or whether that is like longitudinally, when we think about sort of any crisis that envelops the world, like how do we use and navigate lines of difference as a way of amplifying our stories, amplifying our imperfections, amplifing our strengths and collating them and intersecting them to transforming organizations. And for me, like my superpower is a storytelling component. Like how do I articulate that? How will I communicate that? Like that is my internal brand. And it is also anchored in the humility and understanding that the world is always going to try to find the next shiny object to be excited about. And ultimately, as the world continues and change and try to put platforms for different types of people. At the end of the day, I'm grounded because of my family. So personal brand aside, right? Like there is Sana, the just Sana, who's known by like friends, like my partner, mom, by my kids. Like that is like personally who I am as a human. And that gives me a lot of calm, calm in the storm. And I think when I think about my future, I want to continue figuring out places where I can navigate in and navigate to. I think that within my current consulting company, it provides me opportunities to see what's happening on the ground in different spaces and try to feel where is my voice going to be leveraged? Where am I going to have the biggest impact? And as I continue to grow in my career through different ways, it's ultimately how am I going to leverage my array of skill sets that focus on strategy, people analytics, storytelling, and how am I going to bring people along in the journey with me? Because leadership is so much about that empathy, that like really acute strategy, but that empathy with people building 
because it's not simply just data. It is people's stories. Like data is centered on people's lives. How do they show up? What are their behaviors? Why are they behaving the way that they do? How are they showing up the way that they are? And to understand data, you need to understand the people. And for me, like that is how I show up. Like I will show up in a way where people feel comfortable to share their story with me. And how do I amplify their story collectively with all of us in this space for a better outcome? And one thing I like I would love to underscore is in this work, you have to have impact. Like you have to show the wins, like to build your brand. You have to show that you are not only walking the talk, but your work is creating impact and magnifying that impact. So how are you measuring yourself by that impact? How are you uh, affecting change within someone else's life? And like being able to speak truth to power there and talking about that change, talking about that growth, like that, that can really just transform the way people look at you because it's like you are grounded in humility, you're grounded in wanting to do the right thing, but you're also showing people that by bringing them along for the ride, this is how you're going to affect the org or the business, the bottom line, or whatever ultimately you end up stewarding in your career. So beautiful. And I think, well, I know that's what's going to keep you relevant and, and rising to the top in this work is because you are so comfortable with uncertainty, with change, because you're so grounded in these foundational practices that you apply to whatever the situation, whatever the challenge, we are anchored in these behaviors, these human-centered behaviors around people and understanding unique lived experiences and how do we relate to each other to get things done in a way that meets the needs of, of the people that we serve. So I remember in our in our previous conversation too, you had said something about responding to the moment in time. And I think the only thing with all of this that's constant is change. It's always going to change. And so knowing that what worked five months ago was not going to work exactly the same now, it's not going to work a year from now. So being able to pivot and use our understanding of human behavior to know what's going to make those pivots most successful. It's listening, it's empathizing, it's being able to hear their stories and really ground into what their experience is and then leveraging that information to to connect everyone and move forward together to co-create something that really is measurable and impact-driven. I am so grateful that you are in this space, Sana, and that the work you do really is pushing the the limits and the boundaries of how we've historically thought about diversity, equity, and inclusion as this boss center, as this nice feelings-based work. No, it's really about the outcomes and the measurement and the long-term goals of the business and how this absolutely intersects with it. Sarah, I think that you're, the way you create this space is so powerful. And I so enjoy the way that you you showed up today and like how you create the space for us to show up as our authentic selves and talk about things that are really deeply meaningful for us. And I just feel like these conversations are so important because the work cannot be done in a black box. Like the work involves people to be vulnerable, to show up as themselves, to talk about the difficulties that they had. Like we are all connected by a human thread. Like we are all experiencing similar challenges, similar griefs. And especially now with the the world, the way that it is today, I feel like we focus disproportionately on how people are not getting along as opposed to like the beautiful moments where there is change, where folks can get along. They can put aside their differences and figure out where is the way that we're connected 
vis-a-vis our humanity. And I so appreciate you. Like, thank you for making a space. Thank you for calling me in and being so gracious. And um, I hope that uh, this was meaningful for those who listened. Beyond. Thank you, Sana, for being such a model trailblazer, modeling in t- in terms of those those vulnerabilities, those courageous behaviors of saying, hey, I, I don't know all the answers, but I sure am going to work towards getting us where we need to go. And in a way that's, that's collectivist and not just focused on our, our individual selves. So as a trailblazer, I know that there are people who have paved the path for you. I want to close out by asking, you know, who have been some of the trailblazers in your life that have helped pave where you're headed? My mother is my preeminent trailblazer. And I just give such an ode to her because she is the most courageous woman that I have ever met. And whenever I have like a moment of weakness or difficulty, I just think about her journey and how she was someone who immigrated 30 something to the United States without knowing the language, without knowing how to drive a car, without knowing where she was bringing herself in. And she had two small kids at the time and what a full life she had because she would never give up. And it is that courage and bravery that I want to instill in my daughter and my two sons about how do we show up for each other, particularly how do we show up for people who are marginalized and that marginalization can look like a diverse array of ways. And it just always gives me solace. Like if my mom can create a space where if everything is against her and she still manages to rise, right? We all rise. Um, How can I consistently utilize that humility and strength to endure anything that comes my way? And what is your mother's name, Sana? Her name is Uzma. Uzma. We honor all of the the hardships and the things that she had to navigate to get you all here, to get you to where you are now and doing the work that you love and are so dang good at. Where can people follow you and stay in touch with all that you're doing? What's the best way? The best way, Sarah, is LinkedIn. Um, So if if there are folks I want to connect, happy to. I'm an email away for a conversation or a touch point. And thank you for honoring that. That made me a little teary-eyed. So I appreciate you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. I'm so appreciative of you. Right back at you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Trailblazing in Color podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to hit subscribe for future episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at, at trailblazingincolor and at trailblazingincolor.com slash podcast. The Trailblazing in Color podcast is created and executive produced by me, Sarah Chapman Becerra. The Trailblazing in Color podcast season one production team includes Alicia Archer and the podcast Bestie team, led by Angie M. Jordan and supported by Gene Credit and Sarah Decker. Our theme song was composed by Troy Chapman. Thanks, Dad. Thank you.